Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elsa's. Elsa's is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. All right, welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today we'll be talking again with sociologist Amy Kaler. Welcome, Amy. Hi, John. Hi. So uh, today we're going to be talking about your uh, wonderful new reader, Gender in Society Reader uh, with Oxford University Press. Uh, it, this was really, really a fascinating read. I, I find most of the stuff that I've read in the last, um, I guess the last five years maybe on this topic has tended to be very much from sort of 30,000 feet, you know, like really, really high, like grand theorizing about, you know, this and that. And, uh, it, you know, that stuff can be really fascinating. That stuff can be really fascinating, but ultimately, um, I don't know. It, it just, it ends up sounding sort of and anything from that high always runs the risk of sounding a little bit like too easy and almost like a QAnon conspiracy theory or something. <laughs> and so what's interesting with this reader is it's really, really granular. It's like right down at ground level and it's looking at specific cases like how does, you know, just even the name of it. Usually these things are gender and society readers. This is like gender in society. So it's right away uh, by that little qualification, it's saying that this is like, how does this work on the ground in specific situations? How does gender work in particular? So you have everything from, uh, you know, this one one little <laughs> selection, which I've I already assigned to my my students, the one on globalization, corporate nationalism and masculinity in Canada. Uh, the one on like sport and Molson beer advertising, uh, which was absolutely fascinating. Uh, but the, um, yeah. So how did you, what was, how did you come up to this? Like what was your inspiration to put this together and get all these various authors in on this? Um, yeah. Uh, the inspiration to put it together um, to be honest was somebody from Oxford university press approaching me and saying, you know, we think there's a need for this and, and we know that you're pretty reliable about getting things done. So how about it? And and me saying, um, okay, that sounds cool. Let's do it. Um, yeah, I was, so what you were saying about um, getting away from the view from 30,000 feet and maybe trying to see how, um, see how gender works, see how gender moves. So instead of sort of describing this 
entity, this sort of vague kind of amorphous thing called gender, um, to look at it almost as a, um, a, a force, a type of motion, a type of uh, something that manifests in processes and relationships and so forth. So, um, yeah, it really is about, it's not about sort of gender as a discrete thing, the way you could have a book about, I don't know, limestone or the Ottoman Empire or whatever, but about the ways in which gender kind of manifests, even if we can't point to something and say, okay, there you go, that is what gender is. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the the divisions, sort of the, the divisions of the book, how, how did you come up with that, like sort of gendered sexualities, gendered families, the gendered workplace, the gendered classroom? Uh, gender in the media, gender and violence, gendered activism, you know, it's all these different. How did you come up with the, that sort of division? Is that just sort of, what what was your logic behind that? Um, well, first it, it could have gone on forever. Like this book could have been 1200 <laughs> pages long, um, but it would have cost $200 and been impossible to lift without mechanical assistance. So it was, you know, we kind of had to truncate what, uh, what went in. Um, so coming up with the different categories, hmm, to be honest, a lot of it was, okay, I've taught undergraduates for a long time. What kinds of things are they interested in? Like what is part of their, you know, their world, their experiences that they might actually sort of read about voluntarily? Um, I found, for instance, that there's a lot of interest or there has been a lot of interest in the classes I've taught in gender and, and the workplace because students are, I mean, many of them are working already either, you know, part time or full time or that's what they they hope they're going to be doing after they graduate. So it's like, what lies out there? What might I be getting myself into? And similarly for the some of the selections from gender and in families. Um, Again, what most of our, not all of our students, but most of them are young adult-ish, so early 20s. And um, a lot of them are thinking about, you know, adult partnerships, lifetime, maybe not lifetime, having kids, maybe not having kids. What is this going to look like? Um, so I, I kind of went with what I had seen undergraduates like be excited about before rather than trying to like force people to read about things that they have no interest in. Um, yeah. yeah. That was, I, 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 that was completely my guess, <laughs> but I wanted to know, because it seems you can tell, uh, you know, the, the old expression, like a face only a mother could love. Like you can tell sometimes when something has been, the divisions and the, the categorization has been done in, in a very kind of, I don't know, overly intellectual kind of academic sense. And then you can tell uh, like you can in Aristotle, for instance, like it's very obvious that his categories emerged from teaching those topics and then just realizing what things in, in the process of teaching, like just naturally kind of coalesce together, like which sort of questions and which topics naturally coalesce around a few questions. And then, and then that that kind of emerges rather than something very sort of scholastic, you know, that's very like, it looks pretty logically, but doesn't make sense. Uh, so that that's good. And the, you know, I mean, 
maybe we could just go into a couple of these in particular. There's one that I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, the the one on the construction of gender and dating apps at an interface analysis of Tinder and Bumble. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's just like completely wild. So maybe you could tell our our listeners just a little bit about that that particular selection because I think a lot of people looking at this would immediately go to there and read that. One. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm like spinning back in my my memory banks to um to this one, but yeah. Um. Uh. Okay. So. Is this this is the question whenever I teach on gender? This is a question that I get first class. First class people say, "Yeah, you know, there's just this you know, they they likened it, especially the the young women. They liken it classes in the humanities and the social sciences that talk about gender relations and stuff. They liken it to Sunday school or confirmation class or like they're like this is religious teaching that doesn't really correspond to my real life. And they're like, try and say this stuff on Tinder or on (laughs) Bumble. Like try and actually try and, you know, get somebody interested in you talking like this or dressing, you know, like that, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. I think the article, the authors here um, are looking, you know, they're looking at Tinder and Bumble and they're getting pretty deep into the weeds in terms of the technologies of, of these apps um, and indicating that, you know, I mean, it's not it's like a truism. You can, on the internet, you can be whoever you say you are, you can be whoever you want to be. And they're pointing out that there are, are limitations to this, that the way um, you know, they're looking at these two dating apps, I assume it, it you know, maybe, maybe not applies to others. Um, users are even possibly without their awareness sort of shunted to towards identifying themselves with one particular gender category, which then implies that what they're looking for is another gender category. Another way, in other words, the apps, the technologies are um, categorizing us, putting us into, you know, into little groups even when we think we have kind of, um, you know, complete free play, you can say anything you want about what you like or what you look like or, or you know, your favorite things or whoever. But there are um, uh, ways in which the apparatus around you, whether it's something on your phone or, or whether it's your your built environment, you know, think of the, the kerfluffle over the gendered naming of of washrooms or whether it's uh, the ideas that are sort of ambient in the air around you will it'll constrain your um, ability to be completely free to, in your self-invention and you may not even notice the constraint or be aware of the constraint um, so yeah the, the, t- the tinder and bumble article is a, a bit um, technical uh, but i find that the students actually understand the technical stuff when i just kind of go oh yeah okay that's the way it works Uh, (laughs) but it's you know it's good as a metaphor for one of the sort of central central truths of sociology that you know we have agency we have choices we make decisions but not as freely as um we perhaps believe that we do 
Yeah. Well, I talked, I talked about this particular, um, this particular chapter in your reader in my love and friendship class. And, you know, I had lots and lots of students wanted to, you know, hands were just like shooting up and they were, they, a lot of them had stuff they wanted to add to the, and, and it's funny because in a class like that, you know, a lot of the comments are <laughs> some version of, uh, my friend has an itch. Um, <laughs> should he maybe yeah. see like, <laughs> like yeah. you know, yeah. they're kind of like squirming in place. Like, uh, but so like you, you, you could sort of guess that like quite a good percentage of the questions are, are autobiographical, but they presented as like, well, I've heard my cousin's yeah. friend's dog's walker. Um, like, so, uh, but they, they said that apparently these attempts at, uh, trying to trying to be like much more open and trying to especially not be kind of trans exclusionary on these apps have like backfired very often and i, I think is is like i've been i've been out the game for like a very long time so i don't i don't even like i've never even like when i you know back, back in the day when i was dating there was there was you still met people by face to face at like parties or bars or something or like that's um i mean I, there was a little bit of like the phone dating and some other yeah. kind of stuff but it was considered sort of desperate and like <laughs> like most people yeah. didn't do it now everybody does it now it's like weird if you meet somebody the old fashioned way as they put it you know but but anyway but they tell me that apparently uh what has happened to they they all seem to know at least one person that this has happened to where they meet somebody and they're very kind of um, interested in them and stuff like that. And then they get together and, you know, maybe if there's like, I don't know, some chemistry, they realize the person is, is let's say trans and they're not interested in, um, in going further with that and then they feel like terrible like they're horrible people but then they also are like kind of resentful and they're like but this is ridiculous like if if somebody if somebody presented as being like a 22 year old guy and like you know i showed up like this 47 year old man showed up yeah. it would be rightly pissed off that that was like not truth in advertising or like some big, you know big sweaty trucker shows up you know like yeah. you'd be like okay that was that was like bullshit that was like not truth in advertising but they said you know why is it that because of you know this desire to be much more open um which they agree with they're like yes definitely we should be inclusive and stuff like that but it doesn't mean that you get to misrepresent yourself and then and then when i'm like not interested turn around and like put this guilt trip on me that i'm like transphobic because i don't i'm not interested it's like no <laughs> like that's just you know not my sexuality like that's not uh so i i don't know it just it just seems like <laughs> like really yeah. really intense I mean, it's, what do you what yeah. do you make of what do you make of things like that? I mean, if if students are, you know, feeling anxiety or feeling guilt about that, it that to me speaks to some sort of ambiguity. Uh, like you feel anxious when you're not certain what things are, um, and that what that suggests to me is some ambiguity about. Um, I don't know. Let's say you've been corresponding with a, uh, I don't know a person on 
Tinder, a Bumble or whatever. Um, and then, you know, and they're a 25 year old woman and you go out and meet them in person and you find their 25 year old trans woman to me, that's, and then, you know, you, the, the dater, um, doesn't want to have a relationship with them or, or become romantically involved or whatever. Um, that to me, that speaks to some, you know, uncertainty or anxiety, about whether a trans woman really is a woman, um, and, you know, to, to put it up front, I, I think trans women are women, you know, tall women are women, short women are women, so are trans women. Um, but there seems to be some anxiety about whether um, a woman being trans or a man being trans or, or whatever is legitimate uh, or an adequate reason to say, no, I don't want to, you know, have a romantic relationship with you. And if you sort of swapped out the word trans with other things, other words like um, 50 years old or, um, I don't know, obsessed with trains or something like that, <laughs> and you met this person and you realized, oh, they're 50 years old, you know, they're obsessed with trains, um, whatever. Yeah, no, I don't think it's going to work out because that's not attractive to me. I doubt that your students would then be kind of self-questioning and, and sort of full of anxiety about why they kind of decided, yeah, no, not this person. Um, and the, I mean, there's no obligation to be romantically attracted to someone who's trans just because they're a member of a gender to which you sort of like, just as there's no obligation to want to date, you know, another member of that gender who you know, is 50 years old and obsessed with trains. Um, if that's not appealing to you, um, but somehow there's this anxiety that, you know, this particular characteristic of this person is it's, it's illegitimate. You shouldn't reject them. Maybe you're being anti-trans, whereas other characteristics, it's like, well, okay, they're a nice person, but just, yeah, and, you know, no chemistry or, or not my, my thing and so forth. Um, so in a way, it, it's treating trans women as though they're this sort of special category, which has these special attributes, instead of seeing them as part of the whole vast, incredible diversity of women, um, you know, 95% of which are probably not romantically appealing or dateable or whatever for a whole variety of reasons so that there's this anxiety around what is trans is it just you know one aspect of a woman and in who they are just like um political leanings might be another aspect or religious beliefs or being 50 years old and liking trains or is it something that is sort of special and sacrosanct and therefore not subject to the same sort of filtering process of, you know, yeah, they're a nice person, but when I got to know them a bit more, it, it was just like not for me or not my thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what it is, but they've, I've heard it. This is now, I guess a couple of semesters now I've been hearing this from students. So the, there's something going on there. I can't, I can't figure out exactly. Like I first heard it, from uh, gay male students where they said they would end up, you know, meeting, meeting somebody on like a dating site or something like that. And then you'd get together and 
they would find out they were trans and they would say, oh, you know, I, I 100%, you know, support you. You're, you know, great and everything, but I'm, you know, part of me, my sexualities, I'm attracted to like, to men, to men's bodies, like very stereotypical like men's bodies that I'm not interested in. Uh, and so, and then they would get this lecture about how they were like these horrible, like, you know, practically like KKK racists for not sleeping with them. And they're like, look, you can't guilt me into sleeping with you. <laughs> like yeah. you can't like, I, this is desire is, is something that is sort of mysterious and strange. We don't really know exactly where it comes from. Um, but we have, we have our, I mean, obviously it's culturally conditioned to some extent and it, there's all sorts of factors there, but uh, it is to some extent, like a little bit of a black box. Like we don't know in any, I don't think we really ever know definitively why we like what we like, you know, at a very gut level. And so to tell somebody you're a bad person for liking X and not liking Y um, is, is a little rough, but I guess it's, I guess it's always been, you know, it's always been the case to some extent. And, and now that I think of it, just as I'm even saying this, um, I don't think it's, I think it's always been a problem with online, with, with dating apps to some extent. Cause I just, when I was telling you that, I remembered a story that a friend of mine uh, told me where she, she like went on a date with it. This is back when it was like phone dating, like one right. of the phone dating sites. Like this is in probably the late nineties, I think. And she went and met this guy and in his picture, he looked like this really fit, like trim, very athletic uh, guy of, of probably about, you know, somewhere late twenties, early thirties, maybe. Well, he showed up and he was like mostly bald and quite, quite heavy (laughs) and probably in his like early forties, maybe. And uh, she was just like right away, like, "What? Your picture doesn't look like your, your reality at all. That, that's an old picture, isn't it?" And and he proceeded to give her a big lecture about, "Well, you know, why don't you get to know me and don't be such a superficial person? Like, don't be." So- <laughs> um, and so she ended up like actually staying on. I mean, she didn't like hook up with him or anything, but she ended up staying on this date. And afterwards, she was like, "How did you talk me into that?" He basically guilted me into like, like, oh, you're a shallow person if you don't like have a date with me, you know. But yeah. it seems like you know, there's always going to be some people like that, I guess. Yeah, but. yeah, and that I mean, you know, in the story from your friend where she meets this guy and he doesn't look like what she expects him to, and she wants to go on a date with somebody who looks like you know the pictures that she saw or the description that she heard or whatever. I mean, some of that guilting is happening in her own mind. Like what prevented her from saying, um, you know, okay, I'm superficial. I wanted to date someone who looks like the way I thought you looked and you don't look that way. So I'm I'm not, um, yeah, so I'm not interested. Uh, Best of luck, have a good life. Like what (laughs) she believe she was compelled to continue on this date rather than just saying, yeah, you're right. I you know, I'm, or I'm, I want to go on a date with someone that I'm physically attracted to and I'm just not feeling it here. So, you know, let, let's call it off. Like it's, I mean, the, 
the man in the story is is being a jerk, but what is happening in her mind that she's um, taking that on board and and um, kind of absorbing this idea that I'm really superficial, I'm shallow, or maybe I'm unfair. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. I actually, it, it's funny that uh, that that never occurred to me, but that that makes perfect sense because you have to believe at some level, even if you don't prioritize it, you have to believe that being superficial is a vice. Right. It's a flaw, uh, even if it's not like a a major cardinal sin. But you have to believe that it's a flaw for that guilt trip to work. Because you have to think, yeah, it it probably is kind of shitty to just judge somebody based on a photograph. Like, yeah, that that probably isn't... that. I don't think the best of all possible worlds would have everybody doing that all the time. Um, So... Yeah, that that makes sense. So there's another uh, another one of these selections that I wanted to chat about a little bit. Uh, which, well, I, I it caught my eye at first, Elizabeth Meyer, because uh, just strange coincidence, she actually interviewed in my department years ago, like years and years ago, and we absolutely loved her so much, and we wanted to hire her, but we got. Uh, uh, there's like one person who was like, nope, and uh, prevented that. But uh, the, but gendered harassment in secondary schools uh, and understanding teachers' non-interventions. This, uh, I thought, was really, really fascinating that, um, that schools in high schools, they will totally... The norm is that if, if a student is saying some racist comment, like calling somebody the N-word or something like that, wow you know, bring out the SWAT team. Like that's like absolutely, absolutely not okay. And there'd be big consequences and they make it very clear that's not okay. Uh, but then other kinds of slurs, they have a, a sort of like, eh, you know, boys will be boys, kids will be kids, whatever. Like uh, they're just uh, more of a hands-off, laissez-faire attitude towards it. Um, and, and this, I don't know, I, I found this... Fascinating for many reasons. One of them is that um, I, I don't think I'm betraying a confidence, but I'm going to say it like loosely enough that it doesn't apply. But recently, uh, a friend of mine was on a hiring committee and they're interviewing people for a sociology position. And one of the questions was if a student in the class makes like a really, you know, racist or homophobic or transphobic or whatever, sexist remark in the class, like, how would you handle that like in the classroom? And the uh, job candidate, uh, one of the job candidates said, well, um, I wouldn't want to embarrass the person involved. And so I would uh, talk to them. I would ask to talk to them privately after the class and one-on-one I would tell them, uh, yeah, that's, that's not okay. You can't, can't say anything like that. Uh, and the job candidate was like automatically rejected, um, like for that that response of dealing with it. Um, okay, well, before I tell you what I think about, because <laughs> it very much, I I hundred percent agree with that waiting actually. But um, what do you think about that? Like as a as a question, and what do you think is like the the proper way? like to deal with that having actually you know not a job candidate but having actually been in the in the game for decades gosh um i think that the first thing that you know somebody makes some 
you know, strange, like discriminatory or offensive statement that the first thing to do is to kind of flag that that statement is not a statement of the truth. So, um, you know, I don't think that's true. Um, I disagree because of this, this, and this, I think you can kind of, you know, interject, I don't know, truth, reality, whatever into the discussion, um, by disagreeing with the, the statement, um, at least that's what I do with, with university students who are older than, you know, obviously than kids in high school or something. Um, what you do about the student or um, trying to ensure that stuff like this doesn't come up again has to do a lot with, I think, your reading of is the student, as I, I said before the break, just being an asshole because they can and they, you know, want to is it um an attention getting maneuver and i think you know anybody who's ever taught um gender at the university level is familiar with the kind of attention getting i'm going to be contrarian so that all the energy in the room gets focused on me sort of thing in which case you know depriving them of of that energy is probably the best you can do um and is actually quite effective um or is this a a student who may not have a whole lot of exposure to the world, may um, be somewhat, I don't know, sheltered in their background and who doesn't realize, hasn't figured out that what they're saying either is not true or it's offensive to other people. And I mean, there are students, there are people out there who come to university a bit naive and, and say stuff and I know that because I have been that student. Um, so the sort of like, you know, coming down heavy on that student, the sledgehammer approach is not probably the most effective thing you can do. Whereas the student who's being contrarian because they like the attention or who um, knows perfectly well that what they're doing is inappropriate and does it anyway, more of a sort of you know, a bit more of a sledgehammer and, you know, we don't talk about people's personal characteristics in demeaning ways. Uh, we don't, um, you know, demean or, or say derogatory things about other people's genders or sexualities or religions or whatever that might be appropriate. Yeah. I think that that's a really, really important distinction. And especially if you teach, in a uh, in a big cosmopolitan center where you have lots of people who are studying in let's say you know whatever french english spanish and it's it's not their first or second language and so there are many they're like recent immigrants to canada let's say or the united states or australia or the uk or whatever they're like recent immigrants so they don't not only are they trying to catch up kind of culturally to figure out what's going on they linguistically they don't have a really big grasp of the language. And I know this is something Jonathan Haidt has been uh, sort of going on and on about for, for years now. He says, you know, like whenever he's looked at, um, when he was at the University of Virginia and now at NYU, whenever he's gone through the cases where students have gotten in trouble for saying something inappropriate in class or something like that, he said the overwhelming majority of them were not contrarian shit disturbers who were just sort of like, 
taking the feminism class to like own the libs and be a dick or something, you know, like uh, they were generally speaking, there were people who were fairly recent immigrants to the United States who just didn't, didn't pick up on all the, the clues yet and didn't pick up on like the, the lingo and the jargon and stuff like that. So they were not saying these things. They didn't have any malicious intent at all, Mm. Um, but they were getting sometimes like, you know, actually kicked out of the school or kicked out of classes just for in-class discussion, making a comment. So I, I think that's a very good uh, distinction. But definitely the my sort of baptism and fire. I wasn't even done with grad school yet. I was still, um, I was still finishing my dissertation, and I was teaching part time just to make money. And I was teaching uh, like a couple classes at McGill, uh, Concordia, and then Queens. And I was, you know, going from Montreal to Kingston and back and stuff like that. But I had this cohort of students sitting in the front of one of my classes. And it was a class and we were going over the civil rights movement and stuff like that. And these guys were just very kind of hostile to everything. Um, and they felt they were like a kind of a posse. They were like a group. And so they had right. that kind of like you go girl kind of energy, like where they were like kind of backing each other up and being like stupid. Uh, and they would just, they tested me to the limit. Like they said, in the middle of class, they said, uh, you know, I really don't think women should be studying with men in a university, but if you're going to be, would you stop dressing like sluts? Because it makes it hard for us to focus on our, on our studies. And yeah. I was not saying this like in a joking voice. I mean, it would have been gross in any voice, but they were com- used completely serious. And then he, at other points, uh, another one of them said the Holocaust didn't really happen. Uh, Jews just made it up. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, and, and yeah. the, the piece de resistance was like, we were talking about like police violence against like young black men and things like that. They said, look, I'm from North Africa. I know blacks. Trust me. Uh, th- that's not everything. It's- and so it just tested me to the limit about how you actually, you know, deal with with those kinds of things because you, you want to have like an open discussion and debate, but you also, I guess, have to recognize that the classroom is this utopian setting to some extent where you're creating a little mini community and you're expected to be the one that primarily sets the rules of engagement. Like with the, right. the you're supposed to set like the ethos for the community. Um, and that's uh yeah, but but I mean that's that one the thing with Elizabeth Meyer in your reader, I found that just just fascinating. Like I just wanted to read one little bit of it, uh, where one of the teachers says, um, "The kids are astute enough to see that when they use the word faggot, they won't get sent to the office, and when they use a racial slur, they get sent to the office. It's a very quick connection to make." I had one kid call another a faggot. I hauled him to the principal. I asked for a suspension. The principal didn't want to suspend him. It was one of the vice principals and they saw that I was about to blow my top. So they suspended the kid, but I really had to push for it. Uh, Any type of physical harassment would get a strong response. They just don't tolerate any type of fighting or anything in the school. So if that goes on, there's definitely a response to that. But in things where people are just kind of saying things to one another, no, those are not responded to in the same way. And it would be difficult to respond to them because they occur so much. It's almost like 
they're a part of the school culture, right? And it goes on. It's just absolutely fascinating. Like, so why do you think there are those differences between like what what kind of slurs you can get away with and which ones you can't? Like, well, I mean, this is why you know sociology and anthropology exists to to try to understand these things. Why are certain things? Um, <laughs> Normal, not in the statistical sense, but in the the sort of uh, um, uh, sense of what is valued, what is accepted, what is encouraged, and other things are marked as deviant or abnormal. You know, why is it that using a racial slur is is a you know it's it's a marked action that's deviant, that's abnormal. You know, you're going to there's going to be some consequence for that. Whereas using um, you know, derogatory language about sexuality or gender identity, um, if even if it's not lauded and praised, at least it's it's sort of within that realm of, of things that you can do, and it's more or less okay. I mean, this is this is what anthropologists and sociologists are all over. How do these norms and normativities and um, the normalization of certain actions? How does that happen and how do other actions get identified as abnormal or or deviant or wrong? And it's a, you know, it's a moving target. You know, the stuff that people were, when I was in high school, that kids were saying to each other and teachers were saying to kids would just be, you know, you'd be expelled and lose your teacher's license um, yep. if you did that in 2022. And I see that as progress. I see that as a good thing because, you know, I'm still friends with those kids from high school who were like, you know, called names or were, you know, referred to in derogatory ways and it was all supposed to be good fun. Um, but it, it, you know, it is damaging. Like 35 years later, they still, they still feel it. So that's a good thing. You know, it also varies from institution to institution. Um, I can see that, um, my kid goes to a, it's a big downtown public school with kids from all over that has a really strong ethos of like, nobody is too weird for this school. So you, you can't, it, it just, you know, your friends would ostracize you. Nobody would want to, you know, do anything with you. The teachers would, would look at you funny if you started using, um, you know, derogatory language around sexuality or gender identity, because that's part of the school's culture that, you know, everybody here um, is like weird as our normal and we're proud of it and we like it and, and so forth. So, you know, this is where you have students come to school and, you know, they identify as a, a fox or something and they wear their fox ears and carry their fox tail around. And that um, absolutely doesn't happen in I mean, okay, I'm in Alberta. So it, schools in the suburbs or small towns where, um, you know, the ethos is much more, you know, this is, there are good ways for a boy to be and good ways for a girl to be. And we'll use all kinds of informal cues as well as official stuff to keep you on those paths. So institution to institution varies a lot. I know it's a, a cliche from leadership training and whatnot, but it really does matter who's like the, you know, the nominal head, the symbolic head, what is the, 
principal say? What does the provost say? What does the, you know, the bishop say in terms of setting where those limits are going to be? What is okay and this is fine? And what is, no, that's not fine. Don't do it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. David Brooks in his last book, um, he talks about this and he uses this term, which I, I haven't heard used since like the 1940s like they, they use this in like in sociology articles like from like the 40s and 30s and stuff but uh the idea of like moral cultures mm-hmm. you know like um and he he's like we really need to bring that back and he, t- he gave a couple of examples one that i remember very clearly is he said you know how how people who are in the kind of like running the show, so to speak, whether it's a professor, whether it's a manager, whether it's a, you know, whatever, they can actually set the tone and and establish a certain kind of moral culture. And that can be like a, a very kind of immoral culture, or it can be a really great culture. And once they've set the tone for the culture, it almost kind of becomes this thing that has a life of itself. So even if that person leaves, you'll still see and he, the example he gave was PBS NewsHour. And he said when he first um, started being a talking head on there, the guy who was, was it Tim Lair or was it the the guy who, was, who started the, the PBS NewsHour? Like the cover. Sure. I can't remember exactly who it was, but I remember him. But he said because the camera was, uh, he was one of those old school uh, journalists who believe that you shouldn't be the news, and so you should try and present the news in a very dispassionate way, and don't don't like put a lot of emotion into it and everything. But he said when the camera was off him, he actually had an incredibly expressive face, like yeah. very expressive and very expressive body language, and you could tell when you were saying something that was petty, that was beneath you, that was derogatory, that was small he would just look at you with this look and you just automatically knew that was out of bounds. And you'd be like, okay, yeah, maybe I won't say something like that again, you know? And when you said things that were generous and kind and, and in good faith and really trying to be charitable towards uh, people that you're talking about or or arguing with, um, he would just glow and just without even saying anything, he just set the tone for the PBS news hour. And he said, it's amazing that like he's been gone for years and yet that is still the tone. Like he established a moral culture of what kind of behavior and what kind of speech was, was um, not, e- not even accepted. Cause it wasn't really like, you know, he, he never really explicitly said, you know, that was a low blow, David, that was pretty ugly. Um, but he could you could just tell from his like behavior it is that okay, yeah, he didn't like that at all. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm not gonna do that again. I definitely, you know, educators have that opportunity all the time just by the way you you connect. But I wonder, you know, when you're telling about like the the sort of progressive high school that your kid is going to, and, and my kids went to a school face, you know, right across oh, the street yeah, from yeah. Yale, which is exactly, yeah. it's like super, super, nobody's too weird for, for face. So they all like, you know, there's kids that are like coming out, like when they're in 
grade seven, you know, <laughs> they don't even, yeah. and they're, and it's completely like no big deal at all. There's they lots of trans kids. There's like no non-binary kids and all that stuff. But I did notice that even in really, really open, inclusive, we celebrate diversity environments like that. There's always people that get excluded. Uh, And I noticed that what's really interesting is in those like very, very kind of progressive spaces, I find the people who get excluded the most are people who are neuroatypical. Okay. Like people who are sort of on the spectrum. And it's because to, to navigate an environment like that, where people's names are changing with some regularity, their gender identities, they're like a fox now, um, you know, like they're like, and when things are changing with that kind of fluidity, in order to navigate that very well, you have to, well, first of all, you have to have a very high proficiency in the language of, that's the, pr- the predominant language. So if, if it's a French school, you have to, be really, really, really good. Your French has to be great. Uh, or if it's an English school, your English has to be really great to be able to pick up on all of those subtle linguistic changes and cues and stuff like that. But also, you, I think once you take uh, physicality out of it and people aren't allowed to like push each other around and use physical force as a way of like establishing pecking order. And once you're, you know, not allowed in in obvious ways to sort of, you know, kind of demonize people because of their gender identity or their sexuality or their race or their whatever. Um, Then what happens is to be able to play that particular status game at a high level of proficiency, you have to be very empathetic. You have to be somebody who's really good at picking up on facial expressions, body language, tone of voice, um, you you have to be just very, I guess, what they would call emotionally intelligent. And if you're on the spectrum and you are, uh, especially if you're like, you know, sort of diagnosed with Asperger's, stuff like that, like probably that kind of stuff is, you're sort of like d- dyslexic when it comes to that kind of stuff. And it can it's way harder for them to pick up on all of that stuff. And when they're offending somebody or upsetting somebody, they don't often, they just, they can't tell. It's not like they're trying to be mean. They, they literally just have a, it's like being almost like colorblind or they just don't see a lot of those colors. And I saw that the, the kids who ended up getting in trouble a lot and ended up leaving their school and get, or getting kicked out of their school, very often it was, so obvious to me that they were on the spectrum. And so I'm wondering, I don't know, what what would you think about that? Um, yeah, I think you're talking about ecology, like you're talking about the the fit or or not between an organism and an environment, you know, and schools that are very heterogeneous, um you have like kids from all over with all different kinds of, uh, you know, identities or um, um, like backgrounds or ways of expressing themselves. Um, an atmosphere, an environment where that, that kind of heterogeneity is, is what you walk into every day may not be a good fit for um, some individuals who, you know, work better or, 
you know, function better within environments where things are quite predictable, where like the rules are explicit. This is what's going to happen. This is what you can do and what you can't do. And so, you know, a more explicitly maybe hierarchical or structured environment or an environment where things don't change as much. And so you don't have to be um, constantly attuned to what's changing around you. Um, Maybe a better fit. I mean, picking up on, on cues, both, and I can only imagine when you throw two languages into the mix rather than, you know, just one, but picking up on verbal cues, um, visual cues, non-visual cues. Oh, and then you layer like, you know, Snapchat and group texts and all kinds of stuff over that, which has their, you know, they have their own kind of aesthetics and, and grammars and so forth. Um, being able to pick up on changes or on the significance of things that are not explicit um, is a, you know, it's a, well, it's many things. It's, it's a, a trait. Some people, I think, just are wired so that they pick this stuff up and other people are wired such that, you know, they're great at other things, but this isn't one of them. Um, it's a skill. Like you learn over time to navigate very uh, diverse and rapidly changing social environments, just the same way, you know, in a, a physical environment, if you're like, um, you know, a mammal in a forest, you'd, that you'd learn to navigate the changes in the forest. Um, and it's also, I, I think, a, um, it requires energy, it requires um, putting a lot of your mental resources into kind of figuring out a, a world that is often changing around you. Um, I think that energy generally is, is well spent. Like it can be exhausting to be as anybody who's traveled abroad and in and been in cultural situations where they weren't an insider and didn't really get what was going on. Anybody who's done that. I mean, I, my, I remember my friend said she had a bit of a cold when she first moved to Japan and she, you know, blew her nose on yeah. like, and people just looked at her like she had just pulled her pants down and like peed on the bus. Like they were so yeah. disgusted. Yeah, like, it looked with with palpable disgust because apparently you do, you're not supposed to like you know blow your they they're you're not supposed to blow your nose there. They just find yeah. that really vulgar, yeah. disgusting, you know. And then you know we'll see like a recent immigrant from rural China, you know, here in Montreal, who just thinks nothing of like horking up a big loogie and spitting on the street because yeah. that is not a big deal. But here we're like that's not cool at all. So yeah, I mean, when you're, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, what I was kind of driving at that it seems like these various kinds of rules around, especially rules around like gender. Um, it's, it's really useful to have a reader like this that gets into the weeds and gets like really, really, because it has, um, it has a sort of analytic, analytic and kind of academic value. It's fun to kind of study this stuff and understand it, but it also has you know, a bit of a, a didactic value for students. Like, oh yeah, here's here's the way to be cool in this situation. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Here's the way to navigate this well. Wink, wink. I mean, it's not it's not preachy in that sense. It's not it's not overtly didactic. But young people are always just looking for clues as to how they can navigate their you know, like you said, the mammal in the forest, right? They're, they're trying to nav- they're trying to navigate their social environment intelligently, and so. 
really granular stuff like this is very useful in the sense of uh, being a, a kind of a primer saying like, hey, here's how to be like really cool <laughs> in your situation in life. And here's how to navigate. Uh, people are going to like you, trust me. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to get along with people and, and institutions much better if you uh, handle these things this way. I mean, is yeah. that, was that sort of like a, like a tiny bit of your intention in putting this together or or no? Um, I would say probably no, not really. Um, I would modify, you know, modify a bit what you said to say that one thing that sort of was, I keep saying sort of all the time, which is a bad habit. One thing that wasn't my intention was that I hope students would read that, would read it and would be able to say, okay, here's stuff going on that I wasn't aware of, or that's not obvious to me. You know, here I am going through my life and doing what I do and, uh, you know, whatever it may be. And there's a lot going on around me that um, it it's like, I don't know, maybe I'm on this mammals kick. You know, we can only hear certain frequencies. I only hear certain frequencies. But here's stuff about how there are a lot of frequencies that I don't hear that are, you know, pretty noisy and lots of sounds out there. And I will learn about some of them by, you know, by reading this. So not so much, this is how you should be, but here's, here are things that are happening around you. Here are experiences that people are having all around you that you may not just have been aware of before. And what you do with that knowledge that there are these, you know, the frequencies that you hear are not the only frequencies um, that exist what you do with that knowledge is like outside the scope of, you know, teaching sociology of gender, I think. Yeah. I mean, that, that for me is almost like what you just said there, like that, that's probably, that's a very good in a nutshell encapsulation of like one of my major motivations in life. Like what, <laughs> what gets me up in the morning and what, but I, I am so fascinated by all of the things that I can't see and smell right. sense and and i love it when like another you know sentient human being uh sort of tells me like what they're seeing and what they're hearing and what they're or 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 even better uh when there's some technological advance that like allows me to see a black hole or allows right. me to see something that's really small that i couldn't see with the naked eye or that i you know i i love it when through conversation or technology or, or things like that, you can expand your consciousness into places that it couldn't go if you just relied on the limits of your senses and your experience. I mean, that's that's just beautiful. I mean, but but on the on the same sort of tack, I I as you know, I spent you know the better part of the summer, a couple months uh, down in New Jersey, um, helping to take care of uh, an elderly relative who's whose mind is unraveling with uh, dementia. And it's just so, like, it's just given me, I, I feel like I've just been reborn as a as an educator after the summer because, like, seeing what a mind, and, and spending a lot of time, like, really up close and personal with somebody that you love and care about whose their mind is unraveling, it just gives you all these other insights into how minds work. <laughs> like like yeah. working minds work because when you see what what 
goes away. Like for instance, you know, um, he was normally uh, a, a very this this relative. He's normally just a very very serious, um, incredibly conscientious, good person. Just very considerate, very conscientious. Would never say uh, cruel, harmful things. Um, not at all like a flippant person. Like a person who really thinks before they speak. A person whose ability has an ability to like self-correct and to apologize in a way where they look you right in the eye and you're like, oh my God, he's genuinely sorry. Like, like, oh, wow. You know, like just a really unbelievably good person. Um, and to see, you know, reduced to this person who is just very impulsive and just says whatever's, you know, whatever flashes into his mind. Uh, and it made me think, you know, like people who are on the autism spectrum, um, I think that they end up having a really hard time because they're like that, you know, at, at 15 or, you know, whatever, at 18, like they, they just have trouble with like impulse control with, with reading social cues and stuff like that. And it just seems, I don't know, it, it just seems sad to me that even in our, even in our drive to be as inclusive as possible, it seems like humans, like we can't help but exclude some people. <laughs> like it's, it seems, it feels that way. I mean, what do you think? Um, not sure. What do I think about about what about the the sort of losses of that we can't that we can't. It, it feels like we okay. almost can't help but exclude somebody. Like even, you know, no matter what new kind of moral codes that we come up with that are predicated on the idea that we want to be as inclusive as possible. It seems like the best you could hope for is to get yeah. a really big chunk. <laughs> like if we can yeah. get, if we yeah. can get, you know, 85% of people included, then that's, that's like, yeah. a, that's a win. But the idea that we could get a hundred percent is yeah. maybe not possible. Oh, if you, if you have a hundred percent, inclusion under a moral code i mean you don't really have a moral code you have sort of an anarchy um because the um you know i I, i'm not a big fan of excluding people or shunning them or banning them or what have you um but when that does happen it can be in order to um kind of include or um and, and this is a a phrase that's way overused, I know, um, you know, make a safer space for others. You know, if you've got someone who, whether it's um, because they're trying to be a jerk or because, or whether it's because they just don't realize the, the impact of what they're saying, who's going around, you know, using a lot of ethnic slurs or gendered slurs, you know, by, letting that person continue in that behavior, you're excluding, you're diminishing, you're, you're kind of relegating to second class status. The, you know, the people that are named by those slurs that are denoted by or connoted by, by those words. So, you know, including the person who has, for whatever reason, uh, is not exercising impulse control and is saying all this stuff, um, it's like a zero sum game, you know, then you are, you know, causing some kind of harm, allowing harm to happen 
to the people that are are named by those uh, by those words. So any moral code, any standard of you know the, this behavior is on the right side of the line and that behavior is on the wrong side of the line. Um, there's going to be people on the wrong side of the line who do get excluded. Um, total, complete, wide open, you know, you do you uh, is not really, it's sort of like, I don't know, the, the square root of negative one, it, it kind of can't exist um, and still be called, well, the square root of negative one can't exist and still be called a number. This kind of wide open, individualized, do whatever you want can't exist and still be called a morality or a moral code. Yeah. So it, it by by definition, uh, if if it's a an adequate rubric, it's going to fail some people. <laughs> well, not necessarily. It's it's going to um, uh, protect some people and not protect others. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, another concrete example from the classroom. I had this is years ago, but I had a student who had pretty severe. Um, he was diagnosed with Asperger's, but he was pretty severe. Like he, his ability to to read facial expressions and cues was just, it felt like it was almost non-existent, but he would say things uh, really, really inappropriate things to female students in the class. And I think, I think he lasted maybe two weeks in the class and I kicked him out of the class permanently. Yeah. And, uh, but, but he was saying things like, when I look at you, my penis gets really hard. Like, and he'd say it like loud, like two. Uh, and it was so, it was like almost like hilarious and horrible. And like, because he clearly didn't have any kind of malicious intent. He right. was just really like not, not there. You know, it's like, um, and so I, I would talk to him and the students uh, with disabilities center was like, well, you need to work with him. And I'm like, no, I, I don't actually. <laughs> I said, yeah. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that that he's having such a hard time. But like, uh, I have a lot of, uh, you know, I have students in the class that don't want to come back to the class because they found that really embarrassing um, and really humiliating. I mean, they're already super self-conscious, like 17-year-olds. Like, that's just yeah. putting it over the limit, you know. Uh, but then also, it's just it's so hilarious on one level that it disrupts the flow of the class when he says these things like, yeah, how do you so, get back? Okay. How do you get back that, from that? I mean, like, it's so fucking funny. It's yeah, like, no. okay, back to Kant's categorical imperative. Right. Um, right yeah. Like, yeah, it doesn't work very well. So I, yeah, I, I, I just told him, I'm like, look, I, I have like no, I feel like no bad feelings in my heart towards you. I, I'm sorry. You have a tough time with this, but like, I have to, you know, I'm, this is a temple, I'm the high priest, and I have to establish yeah. a proper, you know, ethos in the temple. And like, we just have to have like, we have to have a, a, a really highly respectful, kind, generous attitude towards each other. And we, yeah. we can't, um, or, or we can't do what the sacred work we're doing here, which is trying to like learn and, you know, so we can't do that. And, um, but yeah, I got, I got a fair amount of like, but what's interesting is that if the student had been just like a jerk and saying things like that, um, obviously like just like a, like a bro with his hat on backwards and just trying to be like, 
I don't know, provocative or something like that. Like um, that, I think everybody would have been fine with it. Like, yeah, sure, you can kick that person out. It's not, it's not a big deal. But yeah, I mean, it, just all this stuff when you get into intentions and and microaggressions and how we need to deal with each other, it just it can get it can get like into really difficult cases quickly, which is once again, as I said from the onset, why I think this reader is so good is because you just don't spend practically any time at 30,000 feet where you're dealing with abstractions and it's like right down like in the weeds, you're dealing with like specific cases, you know, how do we fix this? And the last one I wanted to ask you about, uh, which, cause I, I, I don't, know if I would ever use this for a class, this particular chapter, but it was absolutely fascinating uh, just personally. But uh, the one on like gender and workplace bullying. Right. And how that, so yeah, maybe you could sort of tell our, our listeners a little bit about that and um, how it fits into this. Sure. Um, yeah. So this is the one on on men's experiences of bullying at work. Yes. Yeah. What talking about? Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, this chapter this is probably of- so true to me. Like this yeah. is so true. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is nailing it. Like totally nailing it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is part of the inclusion of this chapter as part of you know what animates the whole book, which is this idea that, you know, gender is not just about stuff that happens to women, you know, gender is like that happens to everybody, like, you know, male, female, non-binary, third gender, whatever this stuff is in your life. Unfortunately, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, maybe you can't opting out of it is not, you know, one of the, the options. And so this, um, this is an, an article by um, by two uh, professors from the Maritimes talking to um, men who identified themselves as having been the the targets of persistent bullying behavior in a workplace. Um, you know, sometimes, but not always, by like their supervisor or their boss or somebody. Sometimes it was coworkers and um, what do they do about it? You know, they're, they're in this position of being victims, being victimized, um, which is not, I mean, nobody, you know, it's a comfortable position for no one. We usually try to avoid that. But um, for men who, who have grown up with an idea that masculinity means being strong, being self-sufficient, being autonomous, you know, there's an, an additional, like, my, you know, my identity is being spoiled. Um, yeah, like, like, like one, of, one of the men says, even my closest friends don't know, because that's the other thing about being a man. It's embarrassing. It's hard to admit I'm being harassed at work because no offense, that's something that I would anticipate a woman experiencing. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It's like wonderful testimony of different guys talking about like, you know, really horrible situations that they were in where they were clearly being like, uh, bullied severely, uh, you know, and and by women sometimes, right? Like, uh, yeah. but they just have like no tools whatsoever because all they were taught when they were young is you use physical violence, the threat of physical violence, or like yelling and stuff like that. But if all of that is off the table in civilized society, then. 
<laughs> you just don't know how to protect yourself. If that's if that's the only way you've been taught to protect yourself when you're under threat, you're just completely disarmed at that point, right? And yeah, yeah. And then there's the the additional layering, like the guy you you quoted saying, you know, that's the kind of thing that happens to women. So like follow that thought through to its conclusion. This is the kind of thing that happens to women. This kind of thing is happening to me. I'm being treated like a woman. And yeah. we know there's there's like abundant evidence that, you know, not not for all men, but for many men being sort of socialized into masculinity comes with the baggage that the worst possible thing you can be is like a woman, like a girl. So um you know, I, I I don't want to create a sort of hierarchy of bullying and this is worse than this and so forth. But for a lot of men, that that sort of this position they find themselves through no desire of their own occupying of being a victim is also a position that puts them on the um, you know the 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 subordinate the inferior um side of this binary of this you know i'm thinking of like a you know a seesaw with like little gender weights on each side of this um gendered notion of um of what men and women are which is not consistent with who they know themselves to be yeah, I mean, well, they're, they're always on those kind of intersectional seesaws because, like, I mean, I remember in one day uh, hearing a bunch of stories that just illustrated this so perfectly all in one day. Like, one was where um, a young African American guy was asked by my friend at, uh, at his job to, okay, we need you to clean the floors because it's at a cafe. And, and, he, and he just responded, like, just with total like contempt and he's like what i'm not your bitch you know like so basically like oh this is like women's work right right I'm saying that and then i heard from a different person that they asked like a sort of poor white guy from this very sort of rednecky neighborhood in baltimore which is actually in the middle of baltimore but it feels like a small like white only town it's, it's yeah like a neighborhood in baltimore it's very sort of like south boston in boston but right. uh, and at, he was asked once again to do some some work that had to be done at work and he said like what am i an n-word to you like so right. it's, it's all these like sort of like oh you know i'm not gonna be you know i mean it's, it's no accident that the one of the big greatest hits of the quebec separatist movement was pierre Vallier's book you know, white N words of America, like negative blonde America, right? Like, so it's, yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. 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 The, you know, there's always, there, there has to be somebody lower than you that you can identify yourself against. Like I'm not a, a woman, I'm not a N word, I'm not a whatever, because if you don't have somebody lower than you that you can repudiate, then maybe, you are the lowest of the low, you know, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a really common dynamic. You know, that's, that's not me. I'm not a, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. And there is a, in yeah. Gendered stuff. You know, like I, that's uh, I, I was surprised. Cause I had heard, I had heard from some of my friends that like, that, that sort of lingo 
comic speech using the word like bitch as a way of like that it wasn't really gendered and that it had transcended gender and stuff like that. But then I heard stories like that and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it seems yeah. like it, it seems like it pretty much kind of is. I mean, but yeah, I mean, it may, you know, I don't know. Context matters. Um, but that said, um, you know, literally, what is a bitch? It's not just a dog. It's a female dog. And people, and the fact that it's that word that gets picked up and used to to denote someone of inferior status rather than a, a rooster or, oh, you know, I don't know, uh, a ram or like, you know, pick your animal. Um, Insect. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in, in it, Japanese, it's, apparently the Shinto heritage, like the worst thing you could say is somebody's an insect or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah, and, and we don't tend to think of insects in terms of of gender, um, but yeah, the fact that the the bitch is a gendered term, um, you know, I'm not sure if this is a word you can say on the radio, but but calling somebody a pussy is not. You know, it's not a reference to sort of generically a cat walking around. It's it's a yeah. gender term. So even if you can deploy these words in a wide range of contexts, the word itself, where it came from and why it became powerful in the first place has to do with, you know, if you're calling somebody that you're saying, you know, that thing which is named is lower than me and also feminized. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't totally buy, I mean, your friends can use whatever words they want, but I, I don't totally buy the argument that, oh, well, the word doesn't have any gender anymore. Yeah, it's, it seems suspiciously. It's got the whiff of it. <laughs> like definitely. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. But I think there's always, there's always going to be some, there's always, every group is going to have some, uh, other, I guess they just have to choose their other carefully and make sure it's um, it, that it can't be reduced to an actual demographic slice of your population in any elegant way. Like, like if we decide, like to just um, I don't know, demonize selfish people. Yeah, or, you know, yeah. I, I'm down with that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I want to like. There's there's a bunch of like just vicious ways of being in the world that are not like you know that if somebody's like this they're, they're just not going to make a very good cooperative you know uh, co-worker partner right. neighbor right. Um, like so there's but those are things that are like pertain to character and you can to to a large extent like change those things you can right. become uh, you can be become a less selfish person it's not it's not like you're stuck yeah. in that thing forever. Right. But if you're a woman, uh, unless you're, you know, whatever you've decided that you've changed your gender identity has switched, you're kind of stuck being a woman. So, like, yeah. if you're a, or a man, so if you just like demonize like all women or all men or all people in some category, then that's there, there seems to be like an important difference between demonizing like a character flaw right. and demonizing like a whole class of people. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's the difference between individual level and, and group characteristics. You know, if you're thinking, I don't know, I really 
don't like people who are selfish or I don't like people who are who are mean or, or what have you. You're talking about things that happen at the individual level, you know, the selfish person won't share anything or the mean person just likes to like hurt people because they can and so forth. But a, a group characteristic, if you say, I don't like, I don't know, Portuguese people, or I don't like Buddhists or something like that. You're, and you're talking about a big category that contains a whole lot of very diverse people who behave in very different ways, then, you know, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. It's a lot of fun. I was wondering just to maybe just to, to finish off, uh, you have, I, I, have you assigned this reader to, uh, to any classes so far? I know it just came out uh, like this year, but um, have you assigned it to any classes yet? Uh, not yet. No, I'm not. Um, I'm not teaching the b- big undergrads um, sociology of gender class this term, and I don't believe I'm teaching it next term either. So it'll be, um, yeah, it'll be a little while before I I test drive it. I guess. Um, yeah. Have you? Do you, do you know anybody else who's assigned it yet? Mm, I could certainly ask around. I know people are assigning it because you know I get these royalty statements with the incredible amount of money that I'm making. <laughs> <laughs> to anybody who, di- who doesn't know about academic publishing, uh, Amy's being very ironic there. <laughs> so, like, yes. Yeah. I know that I'm seeing so like- much and you get like nothing. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. You just, um, even like people who, I know people who've you know been a part of textbooks that are, you know, bestsellers and they still, yeah. you know, they're making like, maybe uh 10 grand a year off of it and that's a best-selling textbook oh yeah that and that's like a cash cow in the textbook world if you're able to do that then then you're doing awesomely well yeah Um, anyway i see numbers you know many units of this book are being sold so you know presumably people are assigning it out there and I, I'd love the the feedback. I'd love to hear from them what they think. Yeah, or- that'd be fantastic because I know if if you have if you have some way of sort of gathering that that feedback and and people who've come up with quizzes and things like that and they can share those things, it, it yeah ends up being really really useful. But I've uh, sort of uh, you know within the within the limits of the law, I've photocopied <laughs> some yeah. some of these selections and given them to. To a class and the the results have been really great i mean and i think what what's really great about it is that it is just uh integrating the theory with the practical examples in a way that just anybody even if they don't have you know much prior knowledge of gender theory and sociology they can just you know any intelligent 16 17 year old can can sink their teeth into this without a problem uh, which is great. Uh, you Good. can't do that for a lot of other ones. But anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and thank you for um, editing this this wonderful uh, this wonderful book. And I hope to uh, have you on again in the future. Okay. Yeah. No. It's it's always a good time. So I um, would be happy to talk at any point in the future. So um, yeah, this has been great. Thanks, John. Great. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye.